This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. We're your hosts, Alyssa and Gary. Welcome to the Homeland Hero Salute, a podcast sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. Brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by Dairy Cam. Learn more about us and our mission by following the Homeland Hero Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today, we have a very special guest on the podcast joining Gary and myself, General Don Bulduck. How are you today, Don? I am doing well, Alyssa. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, it sounds like you have a very impressive resume. Um, so I'm very excited to learn more about you. And and I know Gary's done a little bit of research. Um, Gary was also in the Army. So um, you guys got that in common, which is a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. So Well, it's an honor to be on. And so thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. We, we love getting to know our veterans, especially our veterans in, in New Hampshire, where the Homeland Heroes Foundation is um, founded. All right. Well, let's get into some of these questions. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Don? Um, what years did you serve? You served in the Army, I believe, 1981 to 2017. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, I did. I, I joined the Army about 11 days after I graduated from high school in 1981. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I uh, had a desire to serve my country, but it was also a, a requirement in my family to do so. My grandfather, Charles Baldick, made it, made it a requirement that we serve. Uh, active duty, reserve, National Guard didn't matter to him, and the service didn't matter. But that was his way of, um, I think, uh, giving back uh, to our country and getting us to appreciate uh, what we have uh, and do that through service. Um, I learned service from him my whole life, uh, working on the uh, Baldic farm uh, and uh, all those uh, work ethics of a farm boy, uh, focus, hard work, never quit. Um, served me well in the military, uh, and I had the opportunity to go from private to uh, to general officer, and that was quite an honor. Um, I uh, was born and raised here in uh, New Hampshire, been a resident of New Hampshire for 58 years, and I'm 58 years old. Um, loved this place, uh, came back to it after I retired. Um, all three of my sons live in the state of New Hampshire, and all three of my grandchildren live in the state of New Hampshire, and I'm just uh, just proud to uh, to have that uh, that legacy. That's awesome. And now, having a family requirement of joining the military, did your sons also follow that path? Uh, they did. Uh, I currently have one son that that's serving uh, in the National Guard here in New Hampshire. Uh, he's a specialist uh, for. He's in the field artillery. Uh, which if you ever look at the history of the field artillery, you'll see that it's uh, 
it's loaded with uh, Baldics. Um, <laughs> seem to be the branch that uh, that that uh, we uh, gravitated towards, uh, and um, so my son is no different than my father and many of his brothers, um, <clears throat> and many other Baldics. So uh, that's pretty cool legacy to have as well. Uh, and my youngest boy is a student at Purdue University. He's there on a four-year ROTC scholarship, and he'll get commissioned to second lieutenant next uh, next year. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah. Don, have you had more than one MOS? I've had a number of MOSs. Uh, I imagine. Infantry, field artillery, military police, uh, I was a chemical officer, uh, served in the field artillery in the Massachusetts National Guard. And then that was while I went to college. They paid for my school. It was a green to gold program the National Guard had. And then um, the majority of my time was spent as a in special forces uh, in the Army. Third group, right? Yeah, I I did uh, third group, um, 10th group, 5th group. Um, so I was in uh, three different groups. Yeah. So what is the importance of groups for any civilians that might be listening? So, uh, the special forces regiment, uh, which commonly referred to as green berets, um, have, uh, five active duty groups and two national guard groups in their, uh, brigade level, um, organizations that are commanded by colonels. And um, you have first group in Washington State, third group at Fort Bragg, fifth group at Fort Campbell, 10th group at Fort Carson, and then 19th and 20th groups uh, in the National Guards that are spread all over the place, uh, all across the United States, different, different, uh, different areas. And um, <clears throat> that's known as the first special uh, forces regiment, um, consisting of all of those and the headquarters for that is a two-star general headquarters at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. <laughs> is, uh, there's still, uh, special forces and at Devons or, uh, yeah, Devons. Is no, they, they left, uh, in the nineties, um, uh, transitioned out, uh, to, to, um, to Fort, uh, Carson, you have second and third battalion in Fort Carson, and then first battalion out in Stuttgart, Germany. Now, how long were you enlisted before you became an officer? So I was enlisted from 1981 to 1988, um, and then got my commission. Uh, I was a, uh, attained the rank of uh, sergeant, um, before I got my, my commission, of course, while I was going to college, I didn't compete, um, you know, for E6 or anything like that because I was kind of, you know, I was in school as a ROTC cadet. So that's how that worked. That's always important. And when I was in the service, I always thought that the, uh, some of the best officers that I ever had the pleasure to serve with were prior non-commissioned officers that uh, received a commission. I always felt like they had a little bit more empathy for the enlisted soldiers and they kind of um, uh, just had a better approach to soldiering. 
you know, not not because I followed that route, because um, <laughs> I could be blamed for that. Um, I, I would agree with you. It's it, and my assessment is based off of my time as an enlisted guy. And the I remember in one of my units, um, the best platoon leader was the platoon leader that graduated from the University of Tennessee, um, not the other ones that were from West Point. Uh, and uh, you know, he was prior enlisted and, you know, had a, you know, kind of completely different view, um, of, uh, leadership and how to relate, uh, to the men and women, uh, in his charge. Right. So, uh, I saw that myself, um, and I can't disagree with that. Although all commissioning sources, whether it's direct commission or it's, uh, you know, one of the military academies or ROTC or OCS, um, they all produce, um, you know, they can all be given credit for producing exceptional officers. Uh, but I think that by and large, the ones that people really remember, uh, the ones that were prior enlisted. And I think a lot of enlisted men and women would agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. So can you, I know you talked about your grandfather being the one that made it um, a family tradition to serve mm -hmm. the U.S. Can you talk a little more about him? When, when did he serve? So uh, that's interesting. He did not. He came to the United States in 1899 with his father and mother uh, and his wife, uh, my grandmother. Uh, and uh, they bought the Baldick Farm, uh, which is now the Baldick Farm, uh, in Guilford, New Hampshire. And that was a, you know, produce farm, dairy farm, maple syrup farm. Uh, and, you know, they brought a lot of uh, canning goods and a lot of things, uh, you know, to market. Uh, and so in 1899, they bought the farm uh, in Guilford. Uh, and then from there, um, turned that farm into um, a, uh, you know, a working farm. Uh, and uh, it was... Uh, it was, you know, quite a testament to uh, his will and fortitude because he had a lot. He had several other jobs at the same time to make ends meet before the, the farm became a sustaining, uh, you know, business in and of itself. Right. Uh, and uh, I mean, I used to deliver milk with him on the milk route. And, you know, he was a very, you know, uh, you know, community service uh, minded uh, man, and he instilled in us that um, you know you should be grateful and thankful for everything that you have, and you should approach everything with a tremendous amount of humility. Uh, and um, you know, uh, watching him, watching how hard they work, watching how hard my dad worked, and then having to join them in the work myself, it was um, it was uh, you know a great opportunity to learn about. Uh, you know, sacrifice and patriotism and, you know, giving to others. I, I remember being on a uh, milk route with him and bringing up the uh, milk bottles in the days where uh, they, they clinked and clanged together and, uh, you know, people could hear you coming in this particular home, the milk, the empty bottles were outside and was a note that said, please do not leave the milk this week. And when I went back down to the truck, my grandfather said, well, Puck, what's up with that? Um, that was his nickname for me. Everyone got a nickname, Puck, because I was always 
running all over the place like a <laughs> puck. So I got the name Puck. Anyways, uh, he uh, he's, he. I said, well, Pepe, um, here's the note. And he took the note and he read it and he grabbed the milk from me and he went up there and knocked on the door and I followed him up and he said, uh, you take this milk, you need it for your family and, you know, send your son over for a day's work at the farm and we'll call it even. Um, wow. And, you know, that's, you know, that's what, you know, families and communities did back then. They took care yeah. of each other in that way. And uh, <clears throat> it's something I learned and it's something that I certainly am longing to see come back to our communities. Uh, that, you know, that, that, that sense of taking care of one another and each other and being less divisive. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he showed that in, uh, in spades and, you know, I mean, those are the kind of lessons that we learned. And, and I heard a lot of stories from folks about him, uh, about the Baldick farm, uh, during the depression, uh, mm. people would have starved to death if they didn't have the opportunity to go do a day's work on the farm and bring food home to, uh, to their families. Uh, and so, um, uh, quite a legacy there. Yeah. An incredible legacy for your family. And where did, where did he immigrate from? He came from Canada. Um, originally our family came from Belgium to Canada, uh, and then from Canada down into, uh, into, uh, New Hampshire. There's basically two Baldic families in New England. I'm sure we're related somehow, but uh, <laughs> the patriarchs of, you know, each family were kind of separate, but we share the same name. Uh, and so the Baldics of Maine, Vermont, uh, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, uh, and, and as far down as Connecticut um, are, uh, I'm sure all related, but nonetheless, um, uh, we come from the Charles H. Baldick side and, uh, and follow our lineage that way. Wow, that's incredible. Is there any chance uh, any of that farm is uh, still around? Anything from it? Like, yes, yes, it's still it's still there. Um, I'm pretty familiar with Guilford. We, uh, my wife and I have a place in Winnipesaukee. Uh, oh, nice. Through her family. Yeah. Right um, the, park. the farm is still there, Gary. It's, uh, it's on Morrill Street in Guilford. Big white farmhouse says Baldick, 1779 on it. Uh, we were the second family to own the farm. The original family was a New Hampshire judge, uh, built the farm. Uh, and uh, my great-grandfather and my grandfather bought bought it. And uh, we've been in it ever since. And, um, yeah, it's still there. Uh, it... My dad died in 2018, and uh, he was the last one uh, that was working. I used to send my boys home to help him during haying season, <laughs> maple syruping and things like that, so they could get a taste of that and have some sort of idea and respect for, you know, that kind of work. I think um, aside from pulling weeds and harvesting the garden, um, haying was one of my least favorite things, uh, <laughs> followed closely by chopping wood. Um, and I did that, uh, more than I care to, uh, remember, uh, in all different types of weather. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, being born with a shovel in one hand and an ax in the other, I, I feel blessed. I'll definitely have to take a, take a drive, uh, past that farm when I'm up there next. 
in the wife. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah. So you did a lot of farming as a child, and that's something you've instilled with your boys as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us anything more about your childhood or your young teenage years that helped influence you to join the service or what skills and traits um, best prepared you for your service? Sure. So, um, you know, growing up uh, in Laconia, I, I, you know, I admit right up front, I wasn't the best student. I uh, wasn't really focused too much on on the academic side of things. I did what I had to do and moved on, but I played every sport you could play. Uh, and I was told, um, oh, you're too, too small for football and you're too short to pitch and play baseball, you know, starting to, you know, play basketball, all these other things. But I ended up starting on all those sports. Uh, and so the idea of being told not to do something and uh, saying, oh, well, wait a minute, um, uh, we'll see about that is something I learned uh, in sports, right? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's not the size of the guy, it's the size of the fight in the guy, right? And uh, <laughs> and that's what I learned there. And I kept that with me as a the idea of persevering and that, that idea of persistence and you know, never quitting and, and not allowing anyone to tell you that you couldn't do something. And I grew up in a great community. Uh, I got involved as a uh, police cadet uh, in my ninth and 10th grade years of high school. And um, I really enjoyed that. And I, uh, off of a, you know, invitation, I, I got offered to study to be a uh, part-time police officer. And so I, I started, you know, the studies. Uh, I wasn't old enough to be a police officer yet. I was still 17 years old, but uh, I happened to turn 18 before my senior year started and Chief Bruce Cheney hired me as a part-time police officer in the, in the city of Laconia. And so my 12th grade year of high school was, um, you know, was, uh, was kind of challenging. Every party that got busted, I got blamed for, right? Uh, you know, kind of ratting it out. And I said, hey, listen, you know, little do you know, we could care less about these parties. You just have to be quiet because uh, it's the people around you that call. And once they call, we have to go. Uh, and, you know, so I got nothing to do with it. But uh, that idea of public service and uh, the idea of having the responsibility at 18 years old to be a sworn police officer with the rest uh, authorities and the, you know, authority to carry a gun around while you're still in high school is, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's something that you should not take for granted in the trust that Bruce chief Bruce Cheney put in me at the time. Um, I thought was remarkable because in some circles in the community, that wasn't something that was very popular. Um, no, he did receive some, you know, some feedback. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> so I learned quickly, um, you know, to be responsible, uh, and to take account of your mistakes and hold yourself accountable and be responsible. And I had a great, um, you know, Catholic upbringing. I went to Catholic school and I learned a lot from, uh, the nuns there, mm -hmm. you know, by the time 
working on a farm, um, going to Catholic school, uh, and, uh, you know, getting that kind of regimentation there. Uh, there wasn't really much the drill sergeants had left to introduce me to. <laughs> so, um, yo, you're going to get me up early. Oh, you're going to yell at me. Oh, you might hit me with something every once in a while. Okay. No problem. Uh, I went to Catholic school and I worked on a farm my, most of my life. So <laughs> bring it on, right. Bring it on. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I learned, you know, uh, I mean, I was shaped, um, you know, shaped in those ways. And, you know, we were, you know, we were a family that, you know, we had to work for everything that we got and nothing was handed to us. And, um, you know, there were no special privileges there. And, and I enjoyed growing up that, that way. And I certainly enjoy, uh, the, um, the place that has landed me right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, helping veterans and being an associate professor at, uh, New England college and, uh, being able to um, contribute to my community uh, here in Stratham, New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, it's so it's, uh, you know, it just just set me up to be a respectful and responsible person. And the military uh, uh, certainly, uh, certainly shaped that. I'm, I'm constantly being uh, told by people, hey, don't call me sir, don't call me ma'am, don't do this, don't do that. And um, it's in my DNA, it's in my nature, right? To uh, be, be respectful. It's, um, it's not, uh, I don't mean anything by it other than respect. And um, certainly I don't feel um, that I am subordinate to anybody by giving them the courtesy of calling them sir or ma'am. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but I've been told, well, you know, you're, you know, you're a retired general. You don't have to call anybody, sir. Well, I think you do, you know, yeah. the, the higher you go up, the more humble you should be uh, and the more respectful you should be. And um, I think that's lost. Um, there's too much of sense of entitlement. And that's one thing I did not, get uh from my upbringing and it's not anything i passed on uh to my children uh you know the exact opposites of that and i think we see too much of that uh that today i have to agree with you <laughs> <laughs> well i think this is a good place to stop for part one for part two tune in in a couple of weeks to listen more to dawn's story this podcast is brought to you by the Holman Harris Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, support, volunteer, or donate, please visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at Dairy Cam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. And thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Holman Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.